Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Pursuit of. This season's pursuit is Blackness and the exploration of Black identity across the globe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Pursuit of. This season's pursuit centers around Blackness and Black identity. Today, we have the fortune of having with us Tyson Goddard. Tyson is a 31-year-old entertainer and activist who lives in Brisbane, otherwise known as Mianjin, Australia, and is of proud Fijian descent. Tyson has always been creative, growing up singing in church, dancing in hip-hop crews, and most recently, becoming a drag performer and show producer. He is both the manager of and a performer in Thick Shake Crew, Australia's first all-drag all-person-of-color performance hip-hop crew, is a member of the House of Alexander, Mianjin's pioneering Vogue Ballroom House, and is also a member of Runway Movement, a queer person-of-color performance activist collective. Welcome, 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 Tyson. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so happy that you're with us today because there's so much we want to explore with you. And first, we just wanted to start by asking you a little a little about yourself. Where are you from, mm. about your life growing up? It's not often that we get to explore the other side of the world. And so we're fortunate to have this opportunity. Mm. Uh, so can you share with us a little about who you are, where you're from? What, what are some of your favorite memories from childhood? Well, um, actually, my... Uh origin is like a little bit confusing to some people because I'm actually adopted so I am uh, one of three sons in an adoptive family um I am of Fijian descent but my my adoptive mother is also of Fijian descent that's normally what confuses a lot of people because they're like oh but your mom's Fijian so you know and I'm like yes brown people can adopt as well it's not just white <laughs> people so that's what sort of like gets a lot of people confused a little bit but um yeah I grew up in um near Brisbane so I grew up a little bit south of the city and um yeah like I've just been uh I think I've just been a creative kid my whole life um you know I just transitioned into um making that part of my performance art just today yeah so I've always been very interested in using my performance to also fuse that with my activism you know as my life has gone on so yeah that's just that's basically me at the moment I would say that that is what takes up a lot of my time in this day and age is um yeah just a lot of my performance activism yeah where where did you grow up Tyson I grew up in a I grew up in a town called Kujin um that's like and the indigenous word for um red dirt because there was a lot of red earth there was a it was near a volcano so it's actually volcanic soil um so that's where it gets its beautiful name from and um yeah it was just uh you know a small beachside town but um it was very close to the city of Brisbane or Mianjin as we call it um so yeah it was a very nice upbringing you know very like had a lot to do with the ocean I think that my family being a Pacific Islander family was always like, you know, very attached to the ocean. So we always spent a lot of time at the beach, a lot of time being taught how to fish and, and collect food from the ocean and that sort of thing. And yeah, it was a very idyllic childhood, I have to say. Um, spent a lot of my childhood in church. Um, that was a huge, massive part of my childhood growing up and especially my teenage years, like getting to so starting to be old enough to serve in church. So you really, that's what took up a lot of my time was definitely those activities. 
I hear as you speak, we're, we're using uh, a lot of the indigenous words for various places in Australia. Can you mm. give me a little bit more background? Because most of us know, we know Brisbane, we know the... Uh, um, Sydney I guess the Eurocentric and, you know, terms yeah. for it, yeah. So can yeah. you give me a little more history of what is behind sort of reclaiming these uh, indigenous names for, for these various places? Yeah, well, it's exactly like you say, it's reclamation. Um, and it, I'm so excited that it's happening. I think it's very important, um, especially because, like, you know, myself, uh, white Australians, we are not the original inhabitants of this land. Um, that is the First Nations, as we call them, or Indigenous people. And they, before we came here, they already had like their own language system, their own customs, they had their own tribal areas, and a lot of that is is ignored. So I'm, I'm glad that there is starting to be this um, movement in Australia of starting to use the traditional um, language and words for like our different like areas, especially because like um, there were so many different tribes of indigenous people split up along the coast of Australia. So there were already names for these places that we've sort of just sort of taken. And as you said, we've made them into Eurocentric names. So I'm really glad that we're starting to like educate, especially our younger generations in, in what actually the traditional name is from the traditional landowners. So yeah. And do you see it taking hold in particular by the younger generation? Do you do you foresee that it's something that will permeate the society as time goes on? Oh, definitely. I think they're also doing it at a governmental level as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, before I, I'm not sure how they do it in other countries, but I mean, in Australia, we've always done welcome to countries where we have a representative of the um, traditional landowners from that area come and and welcome to country before we do anything official. And I think that did a lot to really spur on this new movement of using the traditional names even now. I think definitely the younger generations are really getting into it because I get reminded by a lot of them, you know, to use the traditional <laughs> names even when I forget myself. So, yeah, yeah it's really, it's, it's a really nice thing to see, I, I would say. I feel like that's such an important tradition because it's, you're really paying homage and you're you're really speaking to the past that existed before. So mm. the sense of erasure that occurred before, you're sort of trying to, as you said, reclaim uh, uh, and speak to a time yeah. that was before and honor that time. Yeah, so, definitely. As you speak about, uh, as we're speaking about uh, Indigenous people within Australia, I wanted to speak about your own identity so you're mm. of Fijian descent you're raised in uh, Brisbane Mianjin and uh, you're exposed to the indigenous culture within Australia where mm. in all of those layers how did you develop your own identity within all of that mm. well I like like I said before I'm being adopted played a big part in it because my my adoptive family, even though uh, my dad is white Australian and my mother is uh, Fijian and Vanuatu, so that's uh, her her twin heritages that she gets from her parents, were actually what, what a lot of people would call whitewashed. So my family, even the brown side of my family, is quite Australian. So for me, it's been... Uh, search almost for myself for my own like cultural practices and it's only been since I got older and was able to connect with other Polynesians or uh, Melanesians my age 
um, that I've been able to actually learn about our own cultural practices and what is actually a part of our culture and our heritage. So that's actually been a journey I've been on by myself. I mean, my two younger brothers are from different countries anyway, so they're on their own journeys. My brother, younger than me, is um, from New Zealand, so he is actually Māori, which is the Indigenous people of New Zealand. And my other younger brother is half Filipino and half Tongan. So this has really been a solo journey for myself. I would love to say that I was raised in our culture, but um, it's it's really just been a journey for myself, really. But I've just learned that I, I very much identify with my Polynesian heritage. I love the practices of, um, you know, our people. I think that it is a big melting pot, especially with the islands in the Pacific and South Pacific. Um, we do share like such a, a, a strong connection. So it's been really beautiful, especially in later years, joining the activism groups that I've, I've been able to join. I've been able to learn a few of like the cultural dances and I'm, I'm starting to like learn a bit of um, the language of some of these other islands. So yeah, it's yeah. been, it's been good. I think that's my identity. I feel like I'm still very much on a search for my own identity. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I know that that's very individual to me because I do know that a lot of Polynesian children on this side of the world really grow up in strong cultural environments. And that, I think that's something that I've always searched for because I've always felt a little bit displaced by that. But, you know, definitely still identify as, as, a, as a proud Fijian man, um, a proud queer Fijian man. So, yeah, I would say that is definitely what I still identify with. As you were speaking, I'm wondering, the Polynesian community, did you find that on your present journey that you've been accepted into these communities? So having been, as you say, whitewashed and having several layers of identity that you carry with you, do you find that when you go in search for the pieces of your cultural heritage that you are welcomed by the communities? Or do you also find that there's a sort of like, well, you're not fully this or not fully that? What has been the reception so far? I would definitely say it's been well, like 70, 70-30%, you know what I mean? Like I, most people are very accepting, but I mean like in any sort of culture, there is a stigma to outsiders or people who might not know who they are. So, um, you know, I think that there has been a few people in my experience that have sort of been, you know, oh, you you do things this way you do things the Australian way um, because I was raised differently um, but mostly I've just I found a lot of acceptance I found a lot of people very willing to educate me um, to to just share with me I think that's just sort of part of that lifestyle though you know it's very it, it's very uh, it's a sharing kind of culture you know what I mean and I, it's also been as someone who sort of um just sort of grown into their identity uh like in in terms of sexuality like being part of the polynesian community has also been a very huge stepping stone of that because pre-colonization um you know being queer being trans was not it, it was a it was a celebrated part of our culture so you know that's what i found like through getting to know like other Polynesians and Melanesians is, is learning that, you know, as a part of that culture, it's, it's actually very accepted and it's helped me to unlearn a lot of the biases and negative thoughts that I had around my own sexuality growing up. So yeah, it's been a very rewarding experience. That's so interesting because we've all, well, on the Western side, uh, in my own experience, you, you've come to understand uh, the LGBTQIA 
journey, even from the outside looking in as one where there's always been a fight for for recognition. And so it's mm. interesting to see that you're seeing that in, within the Polynesian community, they're like, no, this has always been an accepted part, mm. uh, not even yeah. accepted, just understood part of, of being and existing within mm. the world. Yeah, look, I mean, there still is a lot of, there's religious um, double standards there still because I, I'm Polynesians are famously known for having taken on Christianity you know, huge. I myself, I would, I myself consider myself an active Christian, but you know, like, uh, there is sort of like this strange unspoken thing where, you know, there is the religious aspect of a lot of Polynesian communities where being LGBT is spoken out against, but because it is also such a huge part of our culture, it's mm-hmm. celebrated at the same time. Right. Um, it's not, it, you know, it's not fully accepted, but yet it's also celebrated, which is very, you know, it, it, it's a very weird dichotomy. Like yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like this balancing act almost between, mm-hmm. you know, Westernized thinking and our traditional thinking, you know, it's a, a lot of people don't know that either. Like, because a lot of what we see in Polynesian communities is very heteronormative. I mean, like a lot of the famous football players here are Polynesian, you know, um, yeah. people see Polynesian communities as being very Christian, very religious. And yet, you know, trans women have a huge role in in Polynesian society, especially Samoan society. Trans women have a very huge celebrated ancient role as a part of that culture. And yet they are still disparaged by the same people that celebrate them, if that makes sense. So it's it seems like it's on occasion. It's like when yeah. from what from what you so I don't know if I can liken it to so from Trinidad and Tobago. And so we mm. have carnival every year. So during yeah. the two days of carnival, everything mm. is allowed. Everything and the kitchen yeah. sink is allowed. But come yeah. Ash Wednesday, none of that behavior is acceptable. It is now debaucherous, oh. unacceptable uh, behavior. So it, it, yeah, it feels it's, a little bit exactly like, that like that dichotomy, a little. Yeah. Oh, yeah. very. It's it's very that, um you know, like in, in Polynesian culture, trans women are seen as being the height of femininity, the height of womanhood. Um, they are, you know, in, in ancient times, they were a very celebrated, very revered part of the culture and a very revered part of society. And that carries over to today. So when we have what we call floor shows or socials, um, you know, and, and myself and say my trans sisters, I, I'm not trans myself, obviously, but like my trans sisters come up and we all do performances as as queer individuals. We have people that will celebrate it and they'll say, you know, this was a beautiful performance. We love it because that's their culture. That's what they're used to. But then come Sunday morning, they'll be in <laughs> church talking against it. So it's very, yes, it, it's, it's yes. a very interesting, yeah. <laughs> So how yeah. have you how have you sort of found your own communion between the two? Because you say that you yourself are are Christian and you also identify mm. as a queer man. So where have you found that communion between the two that allows you to um to embrace both? Look, I had to really come to an understanding that what my understanding and what my relationship with God was gonna be is gonna be something that people will flat out say, well, that's not possible. 
you know, I had to, I had to come to terms with that firstly, but I had to do my own research first. Like I, I, my coming out process to my parents was about a two year process when I decided to, to do it. I thought I need to go in and I need to study the Bible front to back. I need to, um, get into what, you know, uh, religious scholars, uh, theologians have to say about different things to be okay with this. I have to know for sure that I'm not just following my own inclinations, which now I look back and I sort of think, you know, your heart is what should always lead you. But I just, I had to know for myself. I think it was also like a thing that if I do take this to my parents, I have to be like, look, I've done my own research. I've done my own study. I've had my own prayer on this. This is what I've come to. I know you won't agree, but I know that I'm okay with it. So, you know, I, and I found, you know, what's funny though, this, it, it is just a plain fact that a lot of people ignore that issues like homosexuality in the context of the Bible are not as frowned on as people want you to believe it is, you know? So, I mean, in, in, in doing my own research into the Bible and my own research into what the Bible says about homosexuality or that sort of thing, it's really, it doesn't really speak against homosexuality the way that Western culture wants you to believe it does. And in a lot of way, I, I found that like, what I realized was that the Bible was being very much weaponized by people to, to judge a community that they didn't understand or were afraid of, you know, and that's sort of where I'm at with it. And I know that there are people who will just flat out disagree with me, you know, so I had to, you know, you just have to come to that understanding when you're a practicing Christian who, who shares that faith, but you're also LGBT, you just have to get used to that fact that there are people who are going to say, well, no, you're wrong. That's actually not right. That's not factual. And people will just disagree with you. So I, it, that was a huge part of it was coming to peace with that. But I mean, also, I am very much, you know, I think like just being raised, being raised in a Christian household as well. It's funny because like, even though my, my family had a lot of trouble coming to terms with my sexuality, they were the ones who taught me that a relationship with God isn't dependent on law. It's dependent on your heart and your connection with him, you know? So it's, it, I feel like that sort of knowledge has always been there. And that kind of understanding has always been there for me. I just had to make it match up to what I understood theologically. And I, and I feel for myself that I have, I feel like a lot of, um, 21st century scholars and theologians would agree with that as well but it is just such an it is such an endemic part of Christian culture to just be flat out against hom uh, homosexuality be flat out against uh, transness that a lot of people don't bother to do that research for themselves so right. you know really that that's where I feel like I'm I'm very I, I definitely I love telling people that I'm an active Christian especially in the LGBT sphere, because a lot of people don't think it's for them. They think that it's a religion that has no place for them. And I'm like, well, you know, a religion is the people, it's not the buildings. So if you feel like you have a connection and this is something that will give you strength, this is something that you've been searching for, don't be afraid to look into this, this right. faith system, you know, just because of what you've been told. Like, this is something that is for you. You know, it's not necessarily something that you have to share with other people in that sort of right. sense you know right well if i can be devil's advocate for a second if the polynesian heritage already is more accepting towards uh, the trans experience the lgbtqia community mm. uh, someone might say why not gravitate to where there's acceptance versus 
um, moving through the sort of like Christian community, which is not as accepting of mm. uh, the LGBTQIA community. So, so, so what I guess what I'm asking too is also what in Christianity makes you go, no, this, I can claim this, mm. this is for me and I can be who I am. They're not two mutually exclusive things. Um, look, I would say to answer your first question, like you were saying, I mean, to me, I think a lot of it is linked to ingrained misogyny and ingrained sexism in Christian circles. There is, for some reason, I feel an ingrained fear of anything that's feminine, anything that seems to be feminine and powerful. People just don't like it. And that includes homosexuality, little gay boys that show more of a feminine side, you know, uh, trans women, you know, there seems to be like just this fear of anything that is feminine is something that can weaken someone, you know? And I feel like even the Bible itself, like even though it seems like the Bible really talks about gender perceptions and, and gender roles, I feel like the Bible itself really shows that there are feminine figures in there that are very strong and very capable of leadership, you know? And I think it really, it really harkens back to that. It really harkens back to, oh, I mean, when you look at it, you when you look at the way people act, and you look at the way people will treat uh, an individual who is LGBT, there is, people don't often know why, like, they go out and they will gang bash some little gay boy. They don't know why they'll jump a trans woman. They don't know why. All they know is there's that there's something in them that's telling them that that's wrong. You know, it's, it's, I feel like it really is just, it's just misogyny. It's just a fear of anyone who sort of adopts feminine behavior, is feminine, um, who isn't, a woman like there is there is a fear of that you know mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's just been ingrained in in so much generational uh you know upheaval and displacement especially for polynesian communities like that they've lost that acceptance of of feminine figures in their communities and societies you know like it's it it's funny because like i was saying before it's such a celebrated part of polynesian society being being trans and, and or as like the Samoans call them fofafines is the traditional name. Like there's such a celebrated role in, in traditional cultures. Um, and yet for some reason, it's just once those people, like I said, they get to it on Sunday, they, they're so, they, they adopt almost a Westernized thinking of it right. where it's sort of like, yeah. Oh, okay. No, that's, that's not okay anymore because we're in Australia. We're not in the islands. We're in Australia. And this is where, you know, this is what's the norm now. So that's where I would really think that comes to. And as well for your second question, um, which was, I think you were asking um, about, you know, what would I say to someone who who was looking to uh, like adopt that faith as their own? Yeah. What would, what makes you, what would I, what makes you be able to claim the Christian faith when it seems to be in opposition to. Yeah. Look, I would say like, I mean, it's, it's, it is a buzzword of a lot of Christians in this modern day and age that they say it's not religion, it's relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what a lot of Christians will say. It's a very like, you know, it's a very early 2000s view of Christianity, like, you know, in when Christianity has its little reforms every 10 years to sort of modernize itself. That's sort of very much a, a, a thing in Christian society that people say these days. And to me, I'm like, well, you know what, that's, that is true. It's It's not about religion. It's not about the laws and the rules. It's about my relationship with God. That's my own you know, and no one can really define that for me. There are people who think that they can define that for someone else. But I mean, again, if you go back to Christian teachings, if you go back to what it says in the Bible, you can't define that for someone else. 
you know, you can't point the finger at someone else and say, well, you're not a legitimate Christian or you're not as Christian as I am because you do X, Y, and Z, because you could technically say that about anyone. So I think for me, it came from my own understanding of the teachings that I was brought up on, but then also my own like research myself. I know that that's not common for a lot of people. I say that, you know, because that is how I came to that. And I would encourage other people who are going through this journey to do that also. But I know that that's not really going to be a common thing for a lot of people because a lot of people just, they're just so used to hearing what they hear when it comes to faith and Christianity that they're not even willing to look in that direction anymore. They're just willing to go with what they've heard, which is that's not for me, you know, but that is definitely my like standpoint on it. I will champion that to the end to say, no, this is a religion that's for you, but you've got to understand that if you're going to do this and as an LGBT person, you, you are going to face backlash. You are going to face pushback. You have to be strong in yourself. You know, you have to be strong in your own convictions for this. So, so as we're talking about the different layers that make up who you are as a human being, I'd like to mm. bring the conversation around to one of our main themes that we discussed, which is blackness and black identity. Now, I know you also mm. identify with your, you also have a sense of black identity and I'd like to get an idea of your journey, your history. How does that now fold in to the layered understanding of who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, well, look, I mean, my family has a history of slavery. That is how my family uh, actually got to Australia. So I think back in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, Australia was still importing slaves from the Pacific Islands, mainly the island of the islands of Vanuatu. Um, they were going over and they were basically tricking these islanders to come on board, telling them that they were going to sell them, you know, goods and, and tools and stuff like that, taking them below deck, then pulling up anchor and, and drifting out to sea and then only letting them out when they were miles away from the shore. So that practice was what we call blackbirding. And basically they would keep all the young men, the able-bodied men, um, and the, the, the boys who were going to grow into men who could work. And then they would throw all of the mothers and the elderly men off the ship. So they would throw them off into the ocean and let them drown and keep on sailing over to Australia. And they would then put these individuals into works on um, cane plantations. So because uh, Queensland in Australia is such a tropical, you know, it's such a tropical environment, there, there will be a lot of pla uh, cane plantations that they will put these, sugar cane that is, sorry, they'll put them on uh, to work in these um, plantations. And um, yeah, a lot of those men ended up either being deported when that act was abolished. So they would be deported back to their country, even though they'd, they'd grown up here, or some of them would settle in, in, in their, you know, in the surrounding towns and, and make a life for themselves. And that is actually how my family was uh, uh, brought to this country. So I, I think we're, we've only been here for about, think about five generations. So not even that long ago, you know, I think the patriarch of our family, who was my great, great grandfather. Um, you know, like I, I grew up with elders that remembered him and knew him, 
you know, so it wasn't that long ago. And yet, yeah, Australian uh, history books don't say anything about it. They, they say very little, a paragraph, if anything. That's all you basically learn about in school. And yet it is the reason why I think Australian industry really took off. Like the, the Australian industry was really built on the backs of these men that were blackbirded from their, their homes and brought over here. Um, and yet, yeah, so there's, there's nothing about them in the history books. And um, yeah, that's played into a huge part of my identity. I remember being taught about this from a very, very young age. I just remember it's all, I've always been cognizant of that. Um, and I think it's always played into why I'm, so, I, I carry my, my color and my culture so proudly, um, you know, even though I come from, and, and again, to play into why my family's so whitewashed, that's why they are is because they've been in this country for a couple of generations now and their 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 language was taken away from them, their culture was taken away from them and they were adopted into a society that basically said, well, you have to act this way. We've, we've brought you here. We have to, you have to act this way in order to be right. part of acceptable, decent society. And that's why, you know, me being adopted into this family, I feel like I always wanted to search for that culture, but I couldn't even find the answers to that question from the people that I lived with because they unfortunately had been very much stripped of their cultural heritage. I think my grandparents right. and my my mother always loved the idea of that culture, that, you know, they always appreciated it. You know, we did have uh, like artifacts and, and, and artwork hanging up in my grandparents' house and, and we loved to go back to Fiji and Vanuatu and visit as, as my family have done for generations. But right. I think because they're so world weary and they they live in a they live in a society that doesn't accept that they've never really tried to adopt any of those cultures so you know that's it's very sad yeah so can you draw uh, uh the connection for uh, many of us because when we think of the Fijian islands and and that community in particular we don't necessarily think of black slaves we don't have the correlation so are you able yeah. to sort of tell us how that happens because when I think of uh, Fiji, Polynesia, Melanesia, I think of very, I think of Pacific Islanders and mm. nowhere in my mind do, do I think of uh, Africans from, you know, Africa or slaves, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, look, I think because it happened on, on a much smaller scale, being that, being that I mean, like, you know, the, the islands are a very small, you know, all the islands are a very, you know, smallly populated community as opposed to, what was going on in the transatlantic slave trade, you know, it did happen on a smaller scale, but I think that was because like, look, those islands were right there. You know, it wasn't like they had to go elsewhere and find, you know, they didn't have to cross an ocean necessarily. Those islands were right there. They were people who were from the same tropical climate. So it was very convenient. And I think that's why, you know, it's not as, it's not as, um, it's it's not as out there, you know, as what we as what we know of the transatlantic slave trade. However, I think for those of us who are descendants of those people, we do relate. I think that's why we relate to you know American urban culture so much is because these are people that look like us. They have the same skin color as us that are telling a story that we relate to. Um, you, I mean, like you come over to Australia, young Polynesians, young Melanesians, they really adopt. Um, the look and the affectations of American urban culture because we relate to it so heavily. It's people out there who are telling, who, who are at, the, who have the ability, and um, are at that stage in their society where they can tell their story and be respected for it. 
respect I say respected for it you know in quotation marks because you know obviously like there's still a struggle there but um I think that's really why that is 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 that you know it didn't happen on such a huge scale but um also I think Australia is just the kind of society that is able to sweep things under the rug in a very polite way (laughs) so it's almost like because it's almost like Australian society is kind of the place that thinks well we're not as bad as America yeah. So, so the problem that we created can't be as bad. You know what so, I mean? Like it's yeah. it's very that. I think America is often used as that particular type of barometer. Well, we're not as bad as mm. them, and it's sort of like to keep the wool over your own eyes. We're like, you know, you live a good life. You know, we're not as bad as those people over there. So just very be happy, that. You know, very that. I mean, it's sad, but I feel like you know, it's like people won't start acknowledging the hardships that you know slaves that were brought to Australia went through until someone makes a movie about it you know what I mean yes you know like it won't be and then everyone and then everyone will jump on the bandwagon you know what I mean like yes like roots the Australian edition yeah (laughs) basically (laughs) basically like it's it's very it's it's a sad reality but I, I feel like that's just the truth of it you know so yeah So I think we're touching on a lot of, we're touching on this topic already, but I still do want to ask, can you speak in your opinion as to how Mm -hmm. race is stratified uh, on, on your side of the world? Is it the same as the West? Like you already hinted Mm -hmm. that Australia sort of sweeps things under the rug. Like is blackness valued? Uh, Are there any nuances that you have experienced as compared to what you have seen or experienced in the West? Like how is race balanced? Uh, mm. on either sides of the world in your experience yeah um I, I love that question because I think like you know there are a lot of there are a lot of parallels with what's going on with American society but like I said because Australian society is so good at sweeping things under the rug I I feel like that kind of movement is really fought with just what you would call pure ignorance so rather than there being a huge backlash and there being people who are out and out racist, um, it gets it gets pushed back against by people who are like, oh, you're being so oversensitive. Things aren't that bad here. You know, why are we why are we having BLM marches in Australia? You know, when that's a that's an I American problem. I remember hearing problem. that. I remember hearing you know? that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it was it was it, it's like a it's a difficult thing for people to understand. I mean, I I would say you know we as colored people not should be grateful but i mean like i'm glad that we don't have that level of of just out and out loud racist in australia but at the same time it's almost like worse cuz these people don't see a problem yeah you know it rather than saying you know well we think this way and we're outwardly against you and this is right. the way we want society to be it's it's a bunch of people that say well there isn't really a problem Right. You know, so why are we doing this? You know, why right. are you talking about America when in actual fact, like, it's still a huge problem. Like, you know, there are still deaths in police custody of Indigenous people. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's still all of that going on. There's still a huge, like, displacement um, and 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 uh, generational issues and trauma for First Nations people. So the Indigenous people of Australia from what we call the stolen generation, you know, that's a huge, like talking point in Australia at the moment because you get people who are saying well the, jo- the stolen generation was for a good reason 
you know, these these children that were taken from their homes and their families to be raised, they, they say to be adopted and raised by white families, but really they were just made into indentured servants. You know, like they say, that was a good thing. It it helped it helped it helped the indigenous people. You know, and and it's you know clearly it wasn't. It's caused so much generate generational trauma. Right. That is very much the problem. That there is this horrible undercurrent and underside of Australian society that is built on and perpetuates racist behaviors and racist traumas. You know, but it's it's covered by a layer of you know oh well you know well we're not as bad as America. You know, like it's it's just this continual cycle. And that's why I think those cycles continue is because people are so ignorant to the fact that it has such a huge impact on on even today's generations. I mean, the yeah. Australian kind of like the Australian identity, like the, as in like the Australian white identity is very much that Australia is a country of lovable larrikins like they're you know they're lovable jokers Australians can take a joke they're laid back that kind of thing you know so because people are like well that's that's how Australia is we can take a joke we're da 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 and then you get like this, these younger generations that are raising up to say well actually this is the problem that I'm experiencing and it's a problem that the generation before me experienced and the generation before that and then you just have a bunch of people that are just like you're just too sensitive that's the problem. Yeah. You're just too sensitive. That was in the past. I don't know why you're bringing that up now. Like, and so I feel like that is like the, the, the biggest struggle is, is a lot of young people of color these days are searching for that recognition. They're yeah. searching for recognition of what was done to their ancestors and what was done to their yeah. grandparents and even their parents. And Australian society just likes to, you know, like I, I've said so many times, like just sweep it under the rug as something that generations these days are too sensitive about i would definitely say that's what formulated not only my I, my black or brown identity but it formulates a lot of other individuals that are that are people of color i feel like that is what really formulates their identity as well is this constant push for this recognition because you know everybody i mean like i put it this way so many like australian middle class women will go to the cinemas and they love the help you know, right. they love yeah. that movie. They yeah. love, you know, I, you know, I love Viola Davis and the help. I love that. Like, you know, like it's mm -hmm. very that, mm -hmm. but yet when race is brought up in their own backyard, they don't want to hear a word of it. Right. You know, like it's very, it's very it, that kind of, it's, it's that kind of ignorance to be able to just push right. that to the side. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that, that, that sort of, sentiments and philosophy is echoed throughout the world in many different communities mm. and, you know we, we we use america for the barometer for <laughs> for racism uh but even mm. within within america itself i remember so i remember like years ago new york was considered uh more liberal than you would think like some other uh places in the south and what that uh liberalism would mean would would probably be more inclusive and you know just genuinely more open to community but what i've realized uh, too as you were talking is that there's also a lot of whitewashing as well as you as as you mentioned so it's it's a very similar mm. circumstance of well we're not as bad as the south like those people yeah. are just downright racist oh, you know where, see, yeah. you know we're, we're not as bad as the south where you know mm. but as you say it's very insidious because the fact that you don't think that you have the inclination to be racist can sometimes be mm. worse 
because then when you are performing racist activities or engaging in racist behavior, you can never see it as such because you've already deemed yourself for all eternity impossible to perform, you know, to to behave in that way. And it's more likely to happen in spaces that say that, no, we are not about that. That's not who we are. But because they don't explore in a deeper way, what does that mean? And how Mm. it's not just like you stand on one side and you say, well, I'm not racist. And so then you're not racist forevermore. Uh, because mm. because the land has been built on racist behaviors and racist institutions, yeah. it's difficult to not perform racist behaviors. You know, even exactly. if you're in a more if, even if you're in a more liberal, oh, very uh, liberal communities. And so, as so. you say that, yeah, and even coming from the Caribbean as well too, we would not consider ourselves uh, racist in any way. But when you look more closely, when you peel back the layers, because we don't talk about well, we this i i speak in the past more so we never spoke about race in that way in terms of like we are all like i, I every uh every episode i talk about the the caribbean seeming like one community we are one we don't uh mm. sort of stratify in that way but then when you look a little closer you see the stratification is already done for you whether you choose to look at it or not so yeah. it just Very it, it just comes I- out in different ways Oh, very. I mean, like, look, Australia really prides itself on being what they call a melding pot. You know, they. Yeah. I mean, much like, much like, you know, countries like America, and you know, it's it's multicultural. We have a lot of multicultural identities, but I think, like, even just say, a lot of people consider, like, they they might be very careful what they say about someone who is just like an outwardly brown person. So, someone who is from the islands or you know from africa as we have like a a huge african population here too um you know they sort of think well i'm not saying anything against those people but then they might not realize how they're perpetuating racist stereotypes against say like asians you know what i mean but like one of my um you know a, a perfect example is one of my drag daughters like because we we sort of form houses in the drag community and one of my drag daughters recently entered a big competition in brisbane um a, a big drag competition and she had to bring a signature look so she came down the runway in this beautiful traditional filipino outfit because she's filipino and um it was meant to it, it was paying homage to and and was basically to represent the muslim tribes in the philippines so you know she had like a lot of what a lot of people a lot of people called her that night they said oh you look like a princess jasmine or or something like Mm -hmm. that and you know so she got down the end of the runway and then basically when they were judging her they they didn't like it they didn't see it as being as glamorous as the girls who were out there in sort of your typical western idea of glamour and they were like you look Mm -hmm. they were like you look quirky and exotic and quirky and she took great offense and then they didn't understand why Mm-hmm. And you know she had to explain to call to call something like that that is of Asian heritage exotic is probably mm-hmm. one of the biggest offenses that you can say to an Asian person. You know she's right. like this is this this is a this is an outfit that is meant to be looked on with reverence, 
Right. You know, this is to represent a religious, like the religious beliefs of a tribe of people from where she comes from. It's not a Princess Jasmine look, right. you know. It's right. not just a quirky, exotic. I'm not just. She's like, I'm not just. I'm not just a Westernized fantasy of the East. She's like, this is right. actually something that has religious and cultural significance, and you're over here just dismissing it as being. You know, and there was a big backlash, like which I'm, I'm right. glad there was, like in the Brisbane entertainment drag community, there was a big backlash. It sparked a huge conversation. People were calling it too, calling her too sensitive, or they mm. were calling, um, you know, they called the judges out on on what they saw. But you know, a lot of like the judges didn't understand. They, they didn't get it. They didn't understand right. why. And right. I think that's a perfect example. It's like, well, I'm not out here burning a cross. I didn't, I'm not out here saying the N word, like, you know, it's like, well, no, but you've got to understand that there's so many different narratives of right. what is okay. And, 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 and there's so many different narratives of cultural, right. you know, displacement, you know, that it, you can't just, right. you know, you can't just sort of singularly say, because I'm not doing this, I'm all, I'm then not doing that. Like, right. it's like, no, right. yeah. this is, it, you know, it's different. And, and even just as another POC I've got you know we've all got to learn and educate ourselves on what you know like okay there's things that might be offensive to me as a as a queer brown man but you know you've also got to learn that you can't say those things to someone of Asian descent you know what I mean like it's all it's all a learning process like you know that even I think we as POCs can can also do to help other people from other cultures yeah Absolutely. And I think, too, that if you're not open to realizing that you can perpetrate the same type of behavior, then you you perpetuate it. So for them, it's the they don't realize that what what they consider as the baseline, the status quo is traumatizing because they're seeing it from a very one sided point of view. The fact that you call it exotic, the fact that you call it's it's really it's it's very traumatizing mm. and but they're yeah. not able to see that because they're like what we're not racist can we move on like yeah, no you know exactly. don't get your panties in a bunch as they would say yeah you know yeah very that very very much <laughs> so yeah. i know you have been uh an active member within your community uh advocating for the rights of LGBTQIA. How have you understood the intersection of experience within society as you carry differing minority mantles? Like, is there a hierarchy of discrimination? Mm. Do you have to fight to identify for all the parts of, of who that make up who you are? Do you find people need to contain who you are in a simplified box? Uh, that's just like five oh. questions in one. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally get it. It's very true. I mean, like, the funny thing is, is that in asking that question, um, like, I, I'm glad you asked it because it, it allows me to really highlight that even within, say, the queer community, which is also another marginalized community, there is still a hierarchy within that community, you know, and brown and black people are right at the bottom, you know, like the, the queer community puts one type of person on a pedestal and then it, it you basically get graded underneath and it's really sad because I mean I have you know I have friends that are almost they're only in their early 20s and they're like you know I'm giving up on dating you know like they're like I'm not dateable I, I don't have I'm, I'm not skinny enough to be this but I'm also not wide enough to be that and I'm you know I'm I'm somewhere in between and people don't like that you know it's it's very sad you know and 
that kind of thinking and, and that kind of activism has really been a baby of mine since I, I came out and since I started becoming an active member of the LGBT community, because within the LGBT community, there is such little representation of brown bodies. You know, there is such little representation on local levels and international levels. I mean, you look at RuPaul's Drag Race, even though that is led by a a, a, a brown man, a cis brown man who is queer and is a drag queen and, you know, very beautiful and very talented, even on that international level, like that is probably like, you know, the biggest platform of representation in the LGBT community. Even in that, there is still old racist tropes being played out about the brown queens that go on that show. You know, all the brown queens, they either have to be lovable, what they, you know, as they call the mammy figures, they either have to be like that. And if they're anything else, they're seen as being angry brown women. You know, like this, even in, even on that level within our own community, there is still so many racist tropes that are just being played out season after season. And that's had such a trickle down effect into the local scenes around the world. You know, I mean, now because of that show, everybody has an opinion on what, for instance, drag is and what Mm -hmm. the art form of drag is. So anyone who's different from that, like I was saying earlier about my drag daughter, anyone who's different from what that show is perpetuating, like now you've got audience members who've never done a day of drag in their life that are saying, well, that's not real drag because it's not A, B, and C. You know what I'm saying? So, and then on, I mean, that's in, that's in the, through the lens of drag, but just in terms of socialization in the clubs, um, in the gay community, white men are just, they're at the top of that pyramid. You know, they are at the very, very top. Anything under that is just, you know, you're not allowed in this space. Why are you here? Like that kind of thing. Like, you know, the, the spaces that are occupied by LGBT people are basically, in Australia anyway, I can't speak for, for other countries, but in Australia, those spaces are occupied by white gay men. You know, so even in that marginalised community, it is still a fight for POC people to have that representation. You know, um, a lot of people have come up to, so as you like said, as I as I told you guys in my bio, like, you know, I was a part of like the first POC um, all drag hip hop crew because we all used to be hip hop dancers and then we all transitioned into becoming drag queens. And so now we like use drag as our performance you know, as our performance art that we we like to, you know, sort of like use our dancing for. It's a vessel for our dancing, really. And we didn't realise the effect we were having until a lot of brown queer people were coming in and they were walking in and seeing our shows on the stage and they were coming up to us afterwards and being like, you make me feel like I can be here. You know, they were saying things like that. Like they were coming up and being like, I feel like I can be in this building for the first time. Like they might have just been coming through, been breezing through on their way to another club and then caught our performance. And they were like, we feel like we have a place here now, which is very, it's so sad for me. I didn't realize, you know, until I got into the scene that that was like a huge problem. But like a lot of brown people that are a part of the queer community don't go to the gay clubs you know, especially in my in my city, in Brisbane, Mianjin, um, a lot of them just go to the straight clubs because they feel more accepted there in the R&B clubs where there's other brown people than they even do in their own gay clubs. I mean, mm-hmm. you walk into gay clubs, they never play R&B music. They never play anything other than pop standards. It's always like Ariana Grande 
you know, Lady mm. Gaga, Kylie Minogue, all that stuff that white gays, you know, are famous for relating to. They never want to have an R&B night. They never want to get in any R&B DJs. They never get in any brown performances. And mm. like I'm like the old saying goes, you can't be what you can't see. Right. So a lot of these brown queer people, whether they were trans girls, trans men, you know, other like younger queer boys and girls, lesbians, whoever would come into these clubs and think, I don't have a place here. You know, there's nothing for me here. And even the attitude from other queer people in that in, in that environment were very it's it's very like, you know, very what are you doing here? Like this is this isn't a space for you. You know, and that was very that was very much the the feel that a lot of these like you know brown queer young people were coming away from these clubs with so it was very sad so even in like you know like you say what is it like carrying like right. the mantles of just different marginalized communities it's sad because it's like i you, you can't even before you even get to go out there and be an activist and a representation for your communities out there in the mainstream society you've still got all these fights happening within your own community that you need to get past and that you need to champion and that you need to represent for so even within you know it's sad but even within a marginalized community there are marginalized communities right yeah and that's understandable because it's how i mean we're i don't know if we're ever leaving the plantation i I don't think we realize the trauma that was inflicted that continues to to just to reappear in different circumstances you're all trying to still be at the top so even though you're marginalized, mm. you're still trying to be at the top of the heap or whatever, you know, you understand that, yeah. to be, you, you know, yeah. So you're a community in, in so far as you share uh, the same values, but race is still at the bottom of it. Like race still seems to be at the center of the, the conversation. Look, first. Yeah, look, it took me by surprise, it like, but I never thought it was going to be a struggle. I was going to face within the LGBT sphere. I I didn't, because I hadn't been an active member of that community, I just was unaware that it was a problem. You know what I mean? So it was very, it took me by, you couldn't have told me in a million years that that was, which is very ignorant of me, but I mean, like, I stayed away from the, from the queer community myself before I actively came out and became a performer. Um, and it it was just it took me by surprise how big of an issue that it is you know right. and and by how important it is for me and my group to be these visible figureheads in our community how right. important it, it was and how much it get like you know there was one girl who came out and she's always supportive and she was always like very um at every show and I was just like look I want to thank you I I want you to know how I was saying to her, I was like, I want you to know how grateful I am it is to see your face in the crowd. It gives me so much confidence. And she's like, I want to thank you guys because you guys are the people who made me feel like I had a place here, you know? And that really struck a chord with me. And I was just like, no, like, you know, we're, we're doing so much more than just up here being performers. So tell me, do you feel that your experience is, uh, just confirming your experience is a shared experience with those who have a similar I would say migratory and heritage background do you feel like it's it's a shared experience in that way mm, definitely I, I would I would I would say very much I would say definitely if there's one thing that I've learned you know um delving into the sphere of activism um you know and and just being vocal about 
about all the problems that we do face as people of color. It's that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it is a global story. You know, it is, it is a, it is a definitely a shared experience, especially when you are a part of a displaced community. So you are a part of like, you know, a society that has basically been uprooted and, and turned inside out and whitewashed. You know, it is, it, it, it surprised me that, you know, how much, how many parallels you just see with people from other cultures, you know, like even in not, not just like, you know, I mean, even people are talking to yourself and, and, and Shanita and talking to, you know, people that I've met in an international sphere, but also in my own local hometown, you know, just even people that I've grown up with and that I've known, it's such a shared experience, you know, that whole um, aspect of balance, being on a balancing beam between trying to fit in in the society that you grow up in mm-hmm. and trying to also proudly the culture that you came from yeah. and, and and it's like you're sort of always walking that line of knowing that the louder that you are in your cultural heritage and the prouder that you are will mean the more misunderstood you are by the rest of society you know and I, I think that's something mm. you learn as you grow you know, like you, you, when you're a kid, you're not, you, when you're a kid, all you want to do is fit in. Fit in. And then as yeah. you, yeah. And, and then as you get older and you start to sort of be a lot louder and you start to have more of that connection with your, with, with your past and, and, and your ancestors, the more you realize that it's like, the more I speak out on this and the, the more I start to, you know, really delve deep into that, the more I'm going to lose friends yeah. Or the more that, or the more that people that I I once called friends are going to sort of look at me a bit weirder, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely, it, and and I feel like that is such a universal experience for, you know, young, you know, young POC people everywhere, you know, in in whatever city you're in. I think you hit the nail on the head, just in terms of just thinking about my own experience, like what everything you just said, word for word, when you're younger, you just want to fit in and you want Mm. to excel at whatever the status quo is. So Mm. you need to climb to the top of whatever the established order is in order to show Mm. that you can be successful in this. And the more you learn that, uh, the more you learn about the struggle that's not yet over. Cause I would say in my case too, you said before mm. I, a, a big part of, I, I often say on these episodes that I started doing this is because I, myself, if you had asked me, I would have told you that America, the United States of America was, was, was on the side of like maybe racism light. We were moving beyond it. And only yeah. these, these past few years have been such an overwhelming wave because when when i when when things were like too cultural for me or too black or too all of those were things that i would be inclined to us like can't we just be i don't want to have to be super cultural i don't have to be super but it's because mm. uh, subliminally those things were not they were not things that i could identify with because i didn't grow up with them as you talk about being whitewashed mm. And so yeah. they were also at, in the recesses of my mind, they, they were lesser than they represented lesser yeah. than, and we all know subliminally walking into spaces, what people consider, um, what people consider professional, not professional accepted. Uh, yeah. And so we know the line we have to walk in order to, 
in order to be accepted. But then when you realize that there's such, there's such, uh, a disservice being done where you can't unsee, <laughs> you know, you'd like yeah. to, you'd like to, uh, you'd like to unsee because nobody actually yeah. wants to, to be like, I, I don't know if you woke up being, you know what? I want to be an activist. I want to find something to be, yeah. I don't think you wake up wanting yeah. to do that, but realizing that you can't move forward without doing it is the thing that propels you into the, the position. And as you said, it marginalizes mm. you in some way, even more as the more you move towards, claiming who you are you marginalize yourself in spaces that would rather you just maintain the status quo oh no exactly and you know what it's it's very I mean like that's like a, a huge conversation that I think is going on in today's society which I'm glad that everyone's having because it's making everyone question and say well why is that you know why is that seen as professional Mm-hmm. And even to say, like, a white individual, the question is being asked, why do you think that's professional? Because right. when you, I mean, you look, at, uh, when you, when I mean, you look at what is is seen as acceptable or like even that, I mean, you Google, all you have to do is search into Google, girl fired for wearing braids. Mm-hmm. How many stories are going to come up, you know? Right. And yet no one right. can really explain why you ask them, you say, well, why I have this conversation with people in my own family, even my own father you know, who, who has the, that very like view of, well, no, like, you know, that's, that's too alternative. That's right. to this and that you are, well, why, what makes it, what makes that so alternative and so scary right. that it deserves someone being fired or losing their job or losing the way that they put food on their table? Why is that so bad? You know, and right. I think that's the question no one wants to answer because the truth is, is that when you go back far enough or you dig deep enough, you know, the reason why. Yeah. You know, and so I'm glad that I'm glad that that's a conversation that's really being had at the moment. But I also yeah. understand like it's very it's very painful for some people. I mean, I'm very I feel like I'm very privileged as uh, I mean, as a male and someone who can pass as being straight if I wanted to. You know, I can even though I'm brown, I can slip below the radar. But I feel for women who are coming up in in this society, there is a lot more standards for brown women to adhere to than there is for for brown men you know we can kind of go under the radar a little bit with our appearance anyway you know because there is an element to to that 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 is acceptable but for a brown woman who wants to wear a cultural hairstyle or wants to you know dress a certain way that you know offends no one you know like really like in terms of in terms of in terms of in terms of you know, what they consider to be a professional standard. Like, why is it that brown women seem to really suffer in, under that aspect, I feel, you know? Yeah. Well, even the even this head wrap that I'm wearing is, mm. uh, like, the decision to wear it is an intentional one when I go into all of the spaces that I have to go into. And uh, yeah. b- because... Uh, I am aware that when you see this, you have you you have your own perceptions, and I reject that. Mm. But in rejecting yeah. that, I also have to be okay with the fact that you're marginalizing me because of it. You're putting me in a yeah. box that is somehow lesser than because of it. But yeah. even for myself, oh. because I was raised on those eurocentric traditions myself for me putting on a head wrap i have that inner conversation as well where mm, is it professional not anymore 
But initially, would I go to a job interview with this rap on my head? Absolutely not. Mm. Because instinctively, yeah. I know that's not professional. That's not how you get a job. Yeah. But you don't know where it comes from and why isn't it professional? Yeah. You know, no, exactly. and, and, and we, but we never asked the questions before. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, what you said before about, you know, saying people don't just wake up one day and think, I want to be an activist, you know. I think that's a huge problem is because that's what, that, that is one, the argument that I think a lot of people use is that they say that everyone is just jumping on a bandwagon when it comes to issues like this. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone just thinks, you know, people like everyone wants to be part of a movement. Everyone wants to feel like they're involved. So that's why they don't take movements like BLM seriously, because they think everyone's just jumping mm-hmm. on a bandwagon. But if truth be told, I mean, I know that you probably have this experience as well, but like when I, um, you know, put up a post or I go to call someone out within my own community or I, or I go to bring something up online in a public forum, I don't know about yourself, but I, I question it like before I do it, you know, I'm not just out here Mm -hmm. calling people out and calling people a racist and flinging accusations here and there because it's fun. I think about what I'm doing, like, you know, and, and and to be honest like when you think about that that is a poc person who wants to defend their culture but is then second guessing themselves Mm -hmm. about whether they're going to offend someone whether this is going to affect someone's mental health whether i'm going to uh, you know we're we're having to second guess even defending ourselves you know so to so for people to sort of you know assume that polite it's we've been yeah exactly yeah we've been taught to be polite like ingrained in yeah. us you have to be polite you have to when mm. it, it, it it isn't always a two-way street and i definitely agree with you there is a weight every time that i have to say something that might be misconstrued there's like tons yeah. of rereading just to make sure it can't be put in any other light other than what you intended it to be mm. and it's yeah. it's it's because we know we're going against a machine and and you also know that your intent is not to to slander but your intent is mm. to clarify but even that clarification <laughs> can be offensive yeah. because it just yeah. it's not you it's not done you don't do it yeah well see i mean like i mean if you take the idea of your head wrap as you brought up as a subject you know you know that in wearing that you have to shoulder a lot of looks and assumptions yeah. and 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 insult like like backhanded compliments and insults right. that insult thousands of years of tradition and culture you know right. you, you we're taught to just shoulder it to turn the right. other cheek and take it but then when we go to defend that we're sitting there on our phones rereading what we say or or, or second guessing conversations right. like preparing ourselves all to defend something that deserves to be defended ferociously, you know, right. but where they're, like you said, we're taught to be polite, so polite that we second guess defending ourselves and, right. and our culture that's, that's formulated, you know, right. thousands of years of history just to bring us to this point, you know, yeah. we're, we're afraid to even defend that, you know? Yeah. So I think like, that's an important thing for people to realize is that, you know, no, like this isn't a bandwagon thing. This isn't just people jumping on a trend. It's people using their voices for the first time in a long time but yeah. even then, even though it seems like we should be righteously justified in doing that, even then we second guess ourselves. You know, even right. then we're sort of thinking, am I going to ruffle too many feathers? Is this going to result in me losing my job? Is this going to result in me losing right. friends? 
you know, that's a question we all have to ask ourselves. And I think like that should really be thought yeah. about by people who criticize that. Right. And it's it's definitely always very nuanced. So no one is coming out, especially in liberal spaces, quote unquote. So mm. no one will ever say, you know, oh, your head wrap is unacceptable. But it's just so the way you spoke about the exoticizing yeah, the, the exo- of, the, yeah. of her of her costume of of what she yeah. was wearing it pretty much that same way it's sort of like oh that's very ethnic so it tells it tells people where to place you so if it's not yeah, outright no, judgment it's like oh that's a black thing <laughs> you know yeah. that's a that's yeah. a, oh that's a black thing you it, it, instead of it just yeah. being a topic you know for conversation yeah and the, the bandwagoning so. i i must say uh, Tyson, there is definite bandwagoning happening, but oh, mainly, sure. mainly in corporate spaces where they for need sure. to yeah. identify currently with what's happening, and they need to be seen as as uh, yeah. the face of uh, uh, solidarity. Uh, but in, oh, but, in but but in in some cases, it's really I don't even know if it's skin deep. It's moment deep. <laughs> I think I'm gonna yeah. say oh. it's moment deep. Yeah. It's it's um, react it's reactive. Yeah, and it's sort of waiting for it to to fade. I I get a, a real sense of just just put a few people in places, high profile places, so we can seem to be the thing that you need us to be, so we could get on with life. Oh, very and right. no, so one hundred percent. Yeah. So what I'm the one of the things I'm hoping that comes out of this pandemic is that it is a more sustained because this is not the first time that there's been uh, people of color have awoken to the fact that the injustices are egregious and want to do something about it. And Mm. we see how it sort of plateaus. So I'm hoping that this time there's, you know, we're able to make some significant headway in terms of uh, realizing equity and equality especially in the workspaces and at least at the very bottom line revisiting what it means to be professional and being definitely more inclusive across the board when it comes to that yeah very that exactly yeah i feel like i can just talk to you all night tyson (laughs) Uh, but i know we want to wrap up soon and i want to give you the opportunity to just uh tell us anything that's on your heart, tell us about the work you've been doing and your mission in general beyond what we've discussed so far. Uh, and tell mm. us how we can keep in touch with you for those who would like to reach out or be a part of what you're doing. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, um, I would definitely say that um, my mission as as what it's come to and what I've realized it is in the last few years, I'm very passionate about representation, representation of brown bodies in in all spheres. Like I said before, I'm a very passionate believer in you can't be what you can't see, like I said before. And um, I think that's that's just one of the things that I've found is so important. And, and I've realized in being someone who is a visible figure for younger queer people, queer POC people in my own community, I realized how much I needed that as a child myself and how much you know, it was detrimental to me that I didn't see people like myself, you know, on stages being celebrated in the mainstream sphere. So for me, that is very much my mission is just to keep, um, you know, keep being that representation, but also um, because I 
am venturing more and I have been in the producer sphere. So I've been in the, the sphere of being a, of being a producer in like the last couple of years, it's just creating opportunities. So I really want to create events, create performance, uh, showcases, um, create nights and, and events where POC people are front and center and a spotlight is shone on them and that they can represent themselves in, in through the lens of their own culture, you know, so that they can say, this is, this is what, my culture brings this is what I bring to the table and to really show the beauty of POC cultures within my own city that is very much like what I'm passionate about so you know just creating opportunity and awareness is something um you can follow all of my um work on Thick Shake Crew on Instagram so that is where we do a lot of our advertising and you can keep up with our shows that we're doing and a lot of our activism um, I encourage everyone to follow um, runway movement on Instagram, which is Mianjin's uh, performance activist group that I'm a part of. It is a queer POC collective and it is people of not only Polynesian descent, but many different ethnicities around Brisbane. It's a, it's a beautiful collective. Um, and I would also encourage everyone to follow House of Alexander on Instagram, um, which is the ballroom Vogue house I am on, which is really celebrates um, Vogue culture, which came out of New York, like, you know, and um, we are a pioneering house in the Brisbane scene. Um, we're, we're an official part of the Australian ballroom scene as well. And I would um, encourage everyone to not just follow my house, but look into your local area and look up the um, collectives and the, the activist groups and, you know, even the Vogue houses in your own local city, um, because supporting those um, grassroots um, you know, foundations and those grassroots organizations really helps with, you know, uplifting and the celebration of brown bodies in those like performance spheres. So I would encourage everyone to, you know, not just follow my stuff, but follow all of that stuff in your local city because they're everywhere. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tyson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for this wonderful conversation that we were able to have. Um, I, I'm really honored to have been able to share or be a part of you talking about the different experiences and the journey that you've had uh, to date. So thank you very much. I want to thank our audience as well. Thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time in the pursuit of. This podcast has been powered by Ma's Playhouse, a theater and film company dedicated to increasing the lexicon of Black plays and films emanating from the Caribbean and its diaspora throughout the globe. Thank you for your support in growing this podcast community. Don't forget to hit the like button and follow us on IG, Facebook, and Twitter at Mars Playhouse for details on upcoming podcasts and content surrounding the Caribbean and its diaspora.